This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website, powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-215-0465. That's 800-215-0465. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Okay, wait, let's do a pledge. Everybody here, who likes me in this room? Okay, I've never done this before. Can I have a pledge? A swearing. Raise your right hand. I do solemnly swear that I, no matter how I feel, no matter what the conditions, if there's hurricanes or whatever, that's good enough, will vote on or before the 12th for Donald J. Trump for president. Thank you. Sider America is the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Without a doubt, Donald Trump is playing every single person in the media for fools. Absolutely playing them for fools. And it is hilarious to watch. I want to explain that clip right there that you've heard a hundred times by now. I want to explain it in a way that no one else has before. Um, the left, the, the media, the left wing media is losing their mind over that pledge right there. And Trump did it entirely on purpose. So the first thing we need to realize here, again, this is not, this is not an endorsement of Trump. This is not bashing Trump. This is just explaining, all right? This is a uh, dissection of the Trump phenomenon. That's all this is right here. You have to realize, and once you accept this, then a lot of things will start making sense. Every single thing that Donald Trump is on purpose does is on purpose. Everything. He will not let a single thing go by without him signing off on it. Quick example of this. Did you catch Glenn's TV show the other day? He was showing a, uh, a, a screenshot from a, an interview that Ted Cruz did with Megyn Kelly. And he was criticizing the lighting. Or he was pointing out the lighting and there were cords on the ground and there was the water bottle and they the you could see the crowd was sort of washed out the lighting was bad and all that stuff they only had a, you know a cheap camera angles and all that stuff and it looked cheap and then he went right to Donald Trump's interview with Hannity on Fox News giant stage there were perfect lights on the stage there were colored lights on the crowd the back wall disappeared there were no cords anywhere no water bottles anywhere they used expensive hydraulic cameras that made the whole thing look huge super expensive and 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 i'm not actually not even sure what glenn's conclusion of that was other than here is um cruise made to look cheap and trump made to look presidential my conclusion though though is a 100 percent donald trump demanded that type of setup why because he's a performer donald trump is a performer no one with his skill sets 
as, as a performer, have ever run for president before. Ted Cruz, one of the most brilliant people to ever run for president, has no idea about lighting. He doesn't know about camera angles. He doesn't know about, um, you know, cords and what that, you know, he doesn't know that stuff. But Donald Trump does because he's been doing this all his life. He knows all about lighting and staging and performing. He knows that stuff. So he, there's no way if he was, if they were going to sit Donald Trump in the set that Ted Cruz sat on, there's no way Donald Trump would do it. He'd say, I'm not doing this interview. I'm not doing this interview with the cords on the ground and the water bottle and this terrible lighting. I'm not going to do it. He's in charge of every single aspect of his campaign. A couple of weeks ago, people talked about Chris Christie, you know, standing behind Donald Trump after he endorsed him or whatever. And people were like, what was he doing there? That was entirely on purpose. Donald Trump had Chris Christie stand there because he was a conquered foe. He brought Chris Christie to heel, the tough bulldog governor of New Jersey, who was Donald Trump before Donald Trump jumped in the race. He conquered him and he was to stand behind Donald Trump like a prisoner for the entire 60-minute press conference. That's what that was. Every single thing Donald Trump does is on purpose. Including that pledge right there. Why would he want to do that? Why would he do that pledge? I'll tell you very simply why. He knew that this whole week prior to that, there were all these things started to be said about him and Hitler. He knew that people started to compare him to Hitler, including Glenn Beck. In some ways, 1929 Hitler, right? Hitler and Trump was starting to be a thing. Donald Trump asked everyone to raise their right hand in a pledge because he knew that there were a hundred cameras all around that venue who were going to take a picture of it. And he knew that it was going to kind of look like they were giving the Hitler salute. And he knew that the media would go crazy with it. And that's exactly what happened. Nothing Donald Trump does is an accident. He entirely did that on purpose. He, he had everyone raise their right hands because he knew it would look like a Nazi salute and it would make the media go crazy. And it did that. I want to tell a story here because he may not be with you. Maybe he'll say, why, why would he want to do that? I want to go back to 1972. Now, I, I realize that Radio 101 is, you should not read. It is, uh, it is not entertaining radio. But I have one page here that I'd like to read. I, and, and the reason I want to read this story is because I can't, uh, I can't retell it any better than it's written. There's a book called The 48 Laws of Power. It's a fantastic book. You should definitely get it. And Donald Trump is utilizing... The, the, I, the last time I used this book for sourcing was in 2008. With Barack Obama. Barack Obama used maybe five or six of them. Donald Trump is using maybe 20 of the 48 laws. And one of them is keep others in suspended terror, cultivate an air of unpredictability. I want to share this story. May 1972, chess champion Boris Spassky. Anxiously awaited his rival, Bobby Fischer, in Iceland. The two men had been scheduled to meet for the World Championship of Chess, but Fischer had not arrived on time and the match was on hold. Fischer had problems with the size of the prize money. He had problems with the way the money was to be distributed. He had problems with the logistics of holding the match in Iceland. And he, he might back out at any moment. 
Spassky tried to be patient. His Russian bosses felt that Fisher was humiliating him and told him to walk away, but Spassky wanted the match. He knew he could destroy Fisher, and nothing was going to spoil the greatest victory of his career. Fisher finally arrived in Iceland. But the problems and the threat of cancellation continued. He disliked the hall where the match was to be fought. He criticized the lighting. He complained about the noise of the camera. He even hated the chairs that he and Spassky were to sit in. But after weeks of waiting and endless and infuriating negotiations, Fisher agreed to play. Now, Fisher, I I should say here, was the big-time underdog. Spassky was the favorite. So Fisher, this guy's coming in complaining about everything from the very beginning. And then he gets a little bit closer to doing it, and then he complains about everything again, and he's about to back out, and is he going to play, is he not going to play? And he's complaining about every single thing possible. On the day of the official introductions, Fisher arrived very late. And on the day when the match of the century was to begin, he was late again. This time, however, the consequences would be dire. If he showed up too late, he would forfeit the first game. What was going on? Was he playing some sort of mind game? Maybe Bobby Fischer was afraid of Boris Spassky. The first, oh no, at 5.09, Fischer showed up exactly one minute before the match was to be canceled. Now the first game of a chess tournament is crucial since it sets the tone for the months to come. I think there's 14 games that are played in a chess world championship. But the first game's crucial. It sets the tone. It's often a slow and quiet struggle with the two players preparing themselves for the war and trying to read each other's strategies. This game, though, was different. Fisher made a terrible move early on, perhaps the worst of his career. And when Spassky had him on the ropes, he gave up. Fisher gave up. But Spassky knew that Fisher never gave up. Even when facing checkmate, Fisher would always fight to the, bat- the bitter end, wearing his opponent down. This time, however, Fisher gave up. And Spassky won the game. No one could figure out what Fisher was up to. Why, why would he give up like that? Was he rattled? Was he unsettled? Some thought he was insane. And after his defeat in the first game, Fisher complained all the more loudly about the room, complained about the cameras, complained about everything. And he even didn't show up at all for the second game. He was given a forfeit. Now he's down two games to none, a position that no one had ever come back to win a world championship. Fisher was clearly unhinged. Yet, in the third game, all of those who witnessed it remember he had a ferocious look in his eye. A look that clearly bothered Spassky. And despite the hole he had dug for himself, he seemed supremely confident. They started the game, and he did what appeared to be another blunder, just like he did in the first game. But his cocky attitude made Spassky smell a trap. But he couldn't figure out what the trap was. And before he knew it, Fisher had checkmated him. Quick time out here. So Spassky was known as, he was the best in the world. He can see 70 moves in advance. Okay? So when anyone, one of his opponents, when Fisher moves a, a piece, Spassky knows 70 moves ahead what Fisher could do. So you kind of know what you should and shouldn't do. And then in this third game, Fisher did a stupid thing. And Spassky's like, what? what? Why would he? 
Why would he do this? But here's the thing. Fisher did it confidently. Right? He had a ferocious look in his eye when he did it. So, so Spassky saw a dumb move, and he's thinking, why would he do that? He made a horrible mistake. But then he was confident about it. And he's like, whoa, what's he up to? What, what, how did, why would he do that? He, he must have known that was a dumb move, but why does he look so confident? That got in Spassky's head. He lost the game. And when Fisher won, he leapt up out of his seat and smashed his fist into his palm and said, I'm crushing him with brute force. In the next games, Fisher pulled moves that no one had ever seen from him before. Moves that were not his style. And now Spassky started to make blunders. After losing the sixth game, he started to cry. One grandmaster said after this, Spassky's got to ask himself if it's safe to go back to Russia. Now, after the eighth game, Spassky decided he knew what was happening. Yep, Bobby Fisher was hypnotizing him. And he decided not to look Fisher in the eye anymore. He lost anyway. After the 14th game, he called a staff conference and announced, an attempt is being made to control my mind. He wondered whether the orange juice that they drank at the table could have been drugged. Maybe chemicals were being blown into the air. Finally, Spassky went public. He accused Fisher's team of putting something in the chairs that was altering his mind. The chairs were taken apart and x-rayed, and a chemist found nothing unusual in them. Spassky began to complain of hallucinations, but he kept playing. But the more he played, the more his mind started unraveling. He couldn't go on, and on September 2nd, he resigned. And although still relatively young, he never recovered from his defeat. Okay, hold on. What, what, what just happened there? So Spassky's the favorite. Fisher, the underdog, complains about everything. Starts making stupid moves, and then he's confident about his stupid moves. And then Spassky got all un- unbalanced. He's like, well, what's going on? And Fisher just kept being confident, kept going crazy, kept just being cra- just off the charts. And Spassky finally, he broke down. He's the one who went crazy. He lost it. Fisher is Donald Trump. Spassky is the media. Trump is making the media go crazy. The Washington Examiner uh, last weekend said one producer at a cable news outlet said the process of covering Trump is like being held captive against your will. They've gone mad. So in 2008, when they tripped over themselves in love over Barack Obama and they swooned and had tingles up their leg. With Trump, they are terrified and they're captivated and they have no idea what he's going to do next and they hate him and they love it and they are in a suspended terror. Because in the past, think about every other political candidate. Everything they did was predictable. And because they were predictable, the media could see 70 moves ahead. The media knew everything that was coming and everything that was coming next with all the Republican candidates in particular. They were predictable, but Trump is entirely unpredictable and no one in the media knows what to do with it and they don't know how to control them and it's making them go crazy. So why did Trump have everyone raise their right hand and make a pledge? Because he knew that there were a ton of TV cameras around and he knew that a lot of people were talking about him and Hitler and he knew that people in the media would take a picture when the hands were raised and it would look like the Nazi salute. And he knew that if he did that, he would make everyone in the media lose their mind. And it did. 
It's not because he wanted people to salute him like Hitler for his own benefit. He did it so the media would flip out. Why? Keeps him rattled. And the more that the media is rattled, the more he is in control. one 3393 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website, powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-215-0465. That's 800-215-0465. You're listening to Mike Slater. Slater, I want to tell a story of Stonewall Jackson coming up in the next segment to uh, prove that point again. But I think if you if, try this for a week, okay, because this is going to be a crazy week. Except for a week that everything Trump does is on purpose. Just, just interpret, like, just go with that. Okay, even if you don't believe it right now, just go with it for a week. And then look at the things he does. I'm not saying you'll agree with them. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I agree with them. But they'll make sense. Everything he does is on purpose. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, the protests in Chicago. Now there's conflicting reports about whether or not Trump actually met with the Chicago Police Department or didn't meet with the Chicago Police Department. Um, I think he said that he did. And... Uh, you know, they both decided to cancel the event, but now we're hearing that he never talked to the Chicago. I mean, he canceled that on purpose. He didn't need to cancel it. He canceled it on purpose. Why? Because he got more media attention. He was on Greta, and I was I was in the midst of writing something on Facebook about it, and uh, I heard him do an interview with Greta, and he said, I'm getting a ton more media coverage now than we would have if the protesters didn't show up. He knows that. And he knows that he's, he got a ton more media coverage by canceling it than if he actually had it. I don't know if, I don't know if the cameras would have shown a protests outside of the rally. I think he had to cancel it in order for that to be a noteworthy thing. So you will fail, protesters. <laughs> you will fail. The more you protest him, the stronger he will become. Just like Mitt Romney has learned. Everything he does is on purpose. I'll give you one last example here, and then I'll, t- I'll talk about Stonewall Jackson. Um, where he has his press conferences now. You know, I was, I was, uh, I was with my wife watching um, one of the events or something, and she said, where is he? And I said, oh, he's probably at one of his hotels or something. And sure enough, two seconds later, the anchor goes, we're going to go live out to our correspondent who's standing by at the beautiful Trump International Gold Club in West Palm Beach, Florida. Wow, Chris, that is a spectacular ballroom you're in right now. Sure is, Nancy. I've never seen anything like it before. This chandelier, gosh, it's got to be $10 million. Anyway, Donald Trump's here talking about his primary victories. It's like, you are pawns. You are pawns in his game. 
You, he is he is exploiting you. He, oh my gosh! And you want to know why? Because these media people they want to be liked. Here, this and here, I'll be I'll be hundred percent honest with you. When they go to his Mar-a-Lago club, the reporters, they have in the back of their mind that there's a tiny, tiny chance that if they're nice to him, he'll say, hey, you know what, Mr. Reporter, you want to stay a night at the Mar-a-Lago? Now, there's almost no chance that happened, but there's a little chance. So they're going to go a little bit softer on him, and Trump has just showered them with prestige. And they fell for it. They all fall for it. Come back with Stonewall Jackson. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks for being here. Got a Twitter message here from someone who listens to my local show. And he said, Slater, I hope you bring up the power play uh, uh, with Trump like you did on Wednesday. It was an epiphany for me. And I said, oh, the Howard Stern and Seinfeld and Letterman clips? And he's like, yes, and the Larry King clip. So we played four clips. um, And we'll do that. uh, Or I guess it's three. And we'll do that a little later in the show. Um, Back by popular demand. Uh, right now, though, this and again, this is not an endorsement of Trump. It's so funny. I talked about this on my local show, and someone called in and, and criticized me because, you know, how dare I support Donald Trump? And then literally the next call, Slater, how dare you talk so badly about Donald Trump? <laughs> I'm like, what? Come on. Like, everyone hears these from in the um, through the filter that they uh, come to the show with. Do you know what I mean? So if it's an anti-Trump filter, then what I'm doing sounds like I'm pro-Trump. If it's a pro-Trump filter, then what I'm doing sounds anti-Trump. It's really fascinating over the last couple of months to have to have witnessed that. And it's neither. It's it's really it's well, it's up to you to judge. Um, you know, if these are good or bad. I'm just trying to explain what is. And it's totally up to you to determine, but don't yell at me. I'm not I'm not pushing one or the other, whether it's good or bad. It's not my job. You're smart enough to do that on your own. So my argument in this half hour, last half hour, was Trump everything does everything Trump does is on purpose everything. He's a master showman. He has uh, skill sets that no one who's ever run for president has, uh, including being a performer, not to mention his negotiating skills, um, his ability to control the media, control the media cycle and all the rest. These are things he's been working on for 40 years and none of the other candidates have. And a lot of people say Trump has created this game. He hasn't created it. The media created it a long time ago. Trump's just the first person to figure out how to play it. And the media is going crazy. They don't know what to do. And Trump is using, in particular, unpredictability. Where every other Republican candidate in particular, every other Republican has been 100% predictable, the media has been able to control them because they know what's coming next. They know what they're going to say. They know when they're going to apologize. They know what they're going to do next. And the media can control the narrative the entire time. With Donald Trump, he's completely unpredictable. So the media can't control him. And the media is going crazy because of it. I want to give you an example of um, 
unpredictability. Uh, 1862, Civil War. Stonewall Jackson leading the, this Confederate army. 4,600 soldiers he had with him in the Shenandoah Valley. So this would be like Eastern Virginia. He was up against a force five times the size. All right, the Union, the Union soldiers, five times as many in the Shenandoah Valley. Okay, So that's the Shenandoah Valley, Central Virginia. At the same time, there were 90,000 Union troops marching from D.C. to the Confederate capital of Richmond. Okay, so you got these two things happening. You got uh, Stonewall Jackson and his small number of Confederate troops with a large number of Union troops in Shenandoah Valley. And then you got a ton. You got 90,000 Union troops marching to the Confederate capital, Richmond. So Jackson decided to torment the Union army in the valley. And think, what do you mean torment? He would attack and then retreat. And then attack and retreat and attack and retreat. And everything he was doing made no sense. Right? The Union Army was so confused. They didn't know what he was doing. They couldn't tell if he was going to go march on Washington because he thought that McClellan um, and the Union soldiers were going to leave it unprotected as they were marching to Richmond. He couldn't tell, they couldn't tell if Stonewall Jackson was going to go to Richmond to prepare for the attack there. But then he would come back. To the Shenandoah Valley. And then he would move in circles and, and it was just bizarre. And he did this for weeks. And the Union had, the Union side had no idea what he was doing. Because they couldn't figure out what he was doing, the Union generals decided not to attack Richmond until they could figure out what Stonewall Jackson was up to. Now, in the meantime, in this delay the South was able to put reinforcements in Richmond. So a battle that the Union easily would have won turned into a stalemate, which is a Confederate victory in that case. Jackson did this on purpose. He was unpredictable. He went crazy, it seemed, on purpose. And he did this often. He said, quote, always mystify, mislead, and surprise the enemy. Mystify, mislead, and surprise. Such tactics will win every time, and a small army will destroy a large one. This is the Trump campaign. No one has any idea what he's doing next. And when he does something, no one has any idea why. And then 10 months go by, and he's won 13 states. Last week I was on CNN and they asked why the establishment didn't go after Trump sooner, right? Why they just started two weeks ago or whatever. And the obvious answer, the answer that everyone's giving is because they thought that Donald Trump would fail on his own, right? They thought he was a joke, a clown, and he would peter out and falter and die on his own. So they didn't bother. And maybe that's a little bit true. But there's a deeper answer there, too. And the deeper answer is the establishment didn't attack Trump because they had no idea what he was doing. It was unpredictable. Trump set the tone. He set the environment. He set the media cycle. He set the narrative. And no one could react because they didn't know what he was doing. 
Trump was Stonewall Jackson and the media and the establishment were the Union troops and where they would normally attack. They said, well, let's let's hold off on attacking Richmond here. We got to find out what Stonewall Jackson's up to. That's what they were doing with Trump. They're like, well, we would attack him, but what is he doing exactly? And, and they just were frozen. They were paralyzed because of it. And then when they decided to finally make their move, I was too late. And here we are. Compare that to Jeb's campaign. Jeb's campaign was run by the same people who ran Mitt Romney's campaign, who ran John McCain's campaign, who ran W's campaign. Who, they're the same old people. Same old people, same old strategies, same old tactics, same old messaging. Nothing new, nothing unique, nothing exciting, nothing unpredictable. And the media knew how to play it. They were chess masters who could see 50 moves ahead. Right? The media, the media is chess master. They, they're chess masters against something like Jeb Bush. They know, they know what press release Jeb is going to release, when he's going to release it, what he's going to say, and all the rest. And the media is way ahead of that, and they set the narrative because they're so far ahead. Well, now Donald Trump is the one. Who's way ahead in terms of unpredictability. This uh, And anything he can do to control the media for the day is a win for him. And yesterday was another gift that the protesters gave him. and Because it's unpredictable. He didn't need to cancel that thing yesterday. In fact, it was probably less safe to cancel it. Because you had all these protesters outside and then they closed the venue and they told all the Trump supporters to go outside in, in, in the middle of all the protesters. Which I, I think outnumbered them. Right? So it wasn't... It wasn't I mean, it was safer just probably to keep everyone in, right? But that wouldn't have been as good of a story. So we canceled it. I loved it the whole time. It's unpredictable. And the media hates it. But they love it at the same time. 1-888-933-93. And he only has to control the media for... Well, no one watches the news on Saturday or Sunday, really. So he's really got to control it on Monday, which he probably will as people talk about what happened in Chicago. And then uh, that's it. And that's Tuesday. one 93 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. Later. Let's go to John, Kansas City. John, how are you today, sir? Thanks for calling. Hey, my, excuse me. Hey, Mike. I'm doing great. Thanks Good. for taking my call. Um, the reason for my call, and I'll try to keep this as short as possible for you, is after um, Ted Cruz's response to the mailer in Iowa, I, resent, I had initially rescinded my support. But what's got me changing my mind and going back to Cruz is all the vile hatred and personal attacks from Trump supporters that I myself have received. Um, and I have many friends that have received them as well. 
Like what? Example being my wife, who has made no statements whatsoever in regards to politics, who also happens to be in my Twitter avatar. Um, The other night, she and I were out, and I mentioned to somebody that I didn't support Trump because of his vitriolic nature. And a person looked at me and said, you know what, you're a fat blankety blank, and your wife is a hideous, retarded looking scale of a woman. Yeah, that's uh, that's awful. Where, where where were you? We were out running some errands, and I we ran into some friends, and I was talking to one of them. Wow, that's uh, not much of a friend. Um, well, it was somebody so, else who overheard the conversation and butted uh, in that said that. So let, now let me now that's a horrible and awful. Let me let me ask you this: um, Does that person's issues, and they clearly have them? Does why does that look? Why do you relate that to Trump? Do you know what I mean? Like why? Because that person has issues. Would you say no to Trump? Because himself? Trump, Trump himself pushes that kind of language from his supporters Hmm. with statements like he's made that are on record for calling for his supporters to assault those who do who go to his rallies to protest calling people losers when they don't support him basically he he supports that kind of language from his supporters yeah through his own actions and words at least doesn't disown them or doesn't stop them yeah because i'm sure there's trump supporters who would argue no he doesn't no he doesn't but he definitely doesn't say don't talk like that or don't you know what i mean so so uh i'm on on your your side on that one but uh just trying to cover you from both sides um all right no i i appreciate that i think that john thank you for the call i there's truth i mean how do you want to rebuke that anyone i mean I guess my my overall comment to that is everyone needs to kind of take it down a notch in your support. I don't not in your support, but in how you have a conversation with people about that, and also not take everything so personally. And I'm not talking to John; I'm talking to the guy who spoke to John. Just sorry, I keep in the microphone. I'm sorry. Just everyone needs to sort of just. I think that's true. I think that's true for Trump supporters, for Cruz supporters, for Bernie supporters, for Hillary supporters, for the protesters, for the people at the rally. Everyone just needs to relax. And just listen and and take it in and make the best decision you know. And if someone else feels differently or is undecided, have a conversation, ask questions. Uh, one of my, I, I, give a, I give a lot of speeches and, and uh, some people want me to speak on how to change people's minds. Now, it's different when I'm on the radio versus if I'm talking to someone. Every environment's a little different. But really, the best way to change people's mind is to ask questions. Ask them questions. The worst way to change their mind is to yell at them and <laughs> call them names. Ask them questions. So if you really like your candidate, whoever it is, if you really like them, then you want other people to like them too, right? And if you really want other people to like the candidate you like, the best way to do it is to ask them questions, not to yell at them. So that's my, I'm not going to say tone down the uh, incivility. That's not it. I'm just saying ask questions. And if you ask questions, you'll make, uh, you'll make a lot of positive headway. Is Jason still there? No. Ah, we lost Jason. Jason, call back in, uh, if you can, in the next couple seconds here. We got about a minute or two. Um, uh, let me wrap up with this. 
Drudge. Did you see the Drudge the other day? I think Glenn talked about this. Sort of mocking Ted Cruz and his faith. Bizarre. Like really, really bizarre that Drudge would go there. They linked to a video from rightwingwatch.com, which is like a mediamattersmoveon.org group uh, that just bashes Republicans. And it's videos of Ted and his, and his dad at two separate church services praying, right? And and people are praying and putting their hands on you know the Cruz's shoulders and praying and like all right. Um, so I'll be honest here. So when I was in Tennessee, I only got sixty seconds. I'll tell this quick. When I was in Tennessee, um, when I first moved there, I wasn't religious at all, and I went to a Pentecostal church just honestly to make fun of it. That's it. I mean, just to see what it was like and mock it in my heart. I wasn't there to learn. I wasn't there to have an open heart. And I went and it was weird. I've never seen anything like it. Um, you know, it didn't cause trouble, but I didn't have a good heart. So it was many years ago. Now I'm a Christian and I may not agree with some of the things that Pentecostals do, but putting your arms around each other side by side as you pray, that's not the same as snake handling, right? But that's what Drudge, I guess, wanted you to think it was. Which I guess goes back to a conversation we had a while back, which is, even if, it, if Ted Cruz is a Christian, why is that a problem? Who cares? It's weird. I guess being a Christian is an acceptable form of discrimination. Strange. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater, Slater's America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Uh, let's talk policy here. So we talked some optics in the last hour. Uh, let's talk some policy. A little bit about the, the debate the other day, because they, they talked a lot about this, which I thought was great. Um... I want to issue a disclaimer here, though. Probably going to get a bunch of emails. Uh, A lot of people saying, Slater, you don't understand the real world. Uh, A lot of them never going to listen to you again. All that. But because every time I bring this up, I get all those. And uh, so I always tell myself you shouldn't bring that up. But I think it's very important. So I'd like to do it here anyway, if we can all keep an open mind, myself included. Uh, And I got to issue this disclaimer. There are a lot of people who lose their jobs because of outsourcing. Because a business decides to move manufacturing to a different country. And this is devastating for those families and for entire communities. And I'll be honest, I think a lot of what would happen if I lost my job. You know, I'll never forget when I asked my, or when I told my dad that I was going to propose to Stephanie. My dad loved Stephanie, just loved her. And I was expecting him to be like, oh, I'm so excited, like freak out. I was, I was called him up. Uh, I just think I was in the parking lot right across the street. And I called him up and I said, dad, I'm going to propose to Stephanie. Waiting for him to be all excited. And he goes, oh. And I said, I'm thinking, what? And he goes, you know, 
that's a big responsibility. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, now you're responsible for another person. Like, oh, thanks, Dad. Wait a bit. <laughs> super sobering in this moment. And then later, of course, he was super excited. But uh, I needed that right then. Because it, marriage isn't all, you know, bubblegum and rainbows. And like, yeah, now you're responsible for another person. So I think that how would I take care of my family if I lost my job? How would I pay for my house that I just bought? How would I health insurance? All that stuff, right? And that's a fear I have. But for a lot of people, it's a reality. And and I understand it as much as I could without having gone through it. But I have compassion for it. I want to pick one industry in particular. The tire manufacturing industry. A lot of tires are now manufactured in China. They used to be manufactured here, specifically at a uh, Goodyear, Goodyear tire plant in Union City, Tennessee. It's about 30, uh, 30 minutes north of where I used to live in Jackson, Tennessee. A Goodyear tire facility, uh, facility. A lot of people used to work there, and now no one does. I don't think it's there at all anymore. And it's very easy to blame free trade. And because it's easy to blame free trade, it's also easy to believe that the solution to this is tariffs. To tax tires that are made in China that are being sold in America. So we're going to tax those tires so that people don't buy them. And this hurts China and then people are going to buy American made tires. And I completely understand how that seems like a solution. But I'd like to make an argument as to why that solution hurts more people than it helps. And I can, I can make this argument because it happened a few years ago. This isn't theory. This actually happened. In 2009, we imported 50 million tires from China every year. American companies, but they made them in China. The union, some long union name, I forget, but the union that's in charge of making these tires asked the President Obama for a tariff. And Obama imposed a tariff to protect the American tire industry. Two years later, it worked. There were 1,200 more tire manufacturing jobs in America. Went from 50,800 tire jobs to to, um, 52,000. So 1,200 jobs attributed to this tariff. And it's believed that this contributed $48 million in purchasing power. Wages and all the whatever. All the money because of this tariff. $48 million because of these saved jobs. That's a lot of money, and that's a lot of jobs. That's 1,200 families, bills paid, homes kept, all the rest. And that's all good. And if the story stopped there, that'd be wonderful. But the story doesn't stop there. A tariff is a tax on a product. Because of that tariff, tires are now more, were more expensive for the American consumer. And the American people spent $1.1 billion more on tires than we otherwise would have. That's $1.1 billion that could have been spent on other things that wasn't. So you have a loss in other products. People going out to eat less. People going to the movies less or whatever, right? That's $1.1 billion that could have been spent on other things that wasn't. Now that's $900,000 per tire manufacturing job. 
$900,000 per manufacturing job. That's the cost of that tariff to the American people. Now, you may say, Slater, that's fine. That's fine. I think that's great. I think it's worth it for those 1,200 families. It's worth if everyone pays you know, a couple bucks more for a tire. What's the big deal? These families now have food on the table. They have a home. They can pay for college and all the rest. It's worth it. And maybe if the story stopped there, I could, be on, I could say it's worth it. But it doesn't stop there. Because we imposed, and again, this isn't theory. This happened. Because we imposed a tariff on Chinese tires, the Chinese imposed a tariff on American chicken. This resulted in a loss of a billion dollars in U.S. poultry farms. There was a 90% collapse in chicken exports. You know, we, we sent a ton of chicken feet to China, among other things, but chicken feet. A lot of money there. So we imposed a tariff on China to save 1,200 tire manufacturing jobs. In return, Americans paid $1.1 billion more for tires, and we lost a billion dollars in chicken exports, which, lost, which, which led to a loss of well over 1,200 jobs in that industry, the poultry industry. Now, I bring up where I used to live in Tennessee because this story is very fascinating. I lived in Jackson, Tennessee. About 30 minutes north of me was Union City, where they manufactured tires. And about 90 minutes to my east was Shelbyville, Tennessee, where they had giant poultry farms. So, yes, the tariff saved some jobs in Union Union City, Tennessee. Let's say 1,000 people there. But over 1,000 people lost their jobs in Shelbyville. So, (laughs) that's that's a net loss. Plus, the American people have to pay more for tires. And then we can't spend money on other things, so all those other industries are hurt too. It's a net loss. Now, Trump says he's going to impose tariffs on Chinese products coming to America. Okay. But that's going to be just like what he did for the tire industry, what Obama did for the tire industry. Some jobs will be saved, absolutely. Some people will make more money, absolutely. But everyone's going to pay more for that product. And other industries are going to be devastated here in America. The top, the top um, exports to China are soybeans. Actually, number one is aircrafts. We manufacture aircrafts here. Aircraft. And uh, send those to China. So aircraft, soybeans, cotton, copper, and corn. Those are the major exports we have to China. And that's just China. They're our third major trading uh, partner. Canada and Mexico is one and two. And then China. So I know there's a lot there and I know there's way more to talk about on this issue, but I want to leave it here. Please recognize that I absolutely understand that there are a lot of people who have lost their jobs because of jobs moving overseas. But tariffs are a quick fix. And when I say quick fix, I mean not a fix at all. Like it's, it sounds appealing. But they do much more harm than good. And even if they did save your job, once we get in a trade war, everything you'd have to buy, everything you buy is going to be way more expensive and you're going to be way worse off because of it. So I just want to end on this. Tariffs don't get to the root cause of why a company would move overseas in the first place. 
I think of it like this. There's a push and a pull with everything. There's a pull from other countries to get American companies to move there, right? Like China's pulling American companies to China. But the pull's not that strong, right? It's not a very strong pull. It's not fun manufacturing in China. It's not easy. It's not fun. It's not cheap. It's expensive to ship things around the world. It's not, it's slower, right? Because now you got to, you got to ship things. All the, there's a lot of problems with manufacturing in China. Like it's not good. Like it's not a very strong pull to move to China or Mexico. What it takes is a push to get a company to move to China. There's a strong push from our government pushing American companies out of our country to anywhere else in the world. Does that make sense? There's a push and a pull. The pull, eh, not that strong. Who wants to do business in Mexico? It's terrible there, right? No one wants to pull. That's not, no one wants to move. No one's like, I can't wait to move to Mexico. Like, that's not a thing. But a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to move to Mexico, but it's so hard to do business here in America. That's the push. And I'd much rather take care of all those things first. So this is all I ask. Before we go putting tariffs on things, I'd rather deal with all the ways that we're pushing companies overseas. And if we take care of those things, workers' comp, tort reform, um, corporate taxes, environmental laws, who knows how many regulations, right? If we take care of those things and there's still issues of jobs moving overseas, which there won't at that point, I guarantee it, then we can talk tariffs. But here's what I also guarantee. If we took care of those things and if we had the lowest corporate income tax in the world and all these other things, then there will be companies moving from China to here. And there'll be companies moving from Ireland and Europe and Africa and Asia to here. Beware of the quick fix. And tariffs, that's how they're pitched. Let's get to the root cause instead. one 888 Totally prepared to... Uh, Take some angry calls if you'd like, or you can uh, leave a message on our Facebook page. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook, Slater Radio on Twitter. I hope that sounds reasonable um, and makes some sense. one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Gazetters. Nice for being here. Um, let me say one. Hmm. Let me make one point about trade deficits. And I want to play a clip from the debate. Um, I don't know. You've heard it a hundred times. Maybe we don't need to hear it. Let me know when you have it. We'll see how much time we have. Um, trade deficits. It's a word that is thrown around a lot. Um... This is very tricky to all explain. And I think that's why this idea that tariffs are good is you know, works because it's hard. It's hard to explain otherwise, but the word trade deficit isn't the actual word. Um, it's sort of a slang term. It, it's a lot like the word assault rifle, right? Assault rifle is not a thing, 
right? AR-15, the assault rifle. That's not what that is. AR stands for Armalite, which is the company that first developed the AR-15, right? It doesn't stand for assault rifle. But people who are against guns created the term assault rifle to scare people, right? We all know that. We all get that, right? So that's why you should never call it an assault rifle. It's not a thing, right? Same thing with the word trade deficit. Um, I don't know what the trade deficit is with China. I'm just making a number up. But $5 billion trade deficit sounds like a bad thing. But the real word for trade deficit is capital account surplus. Okay, that's that's like that the econ one hundred and one. Like that's the econ word for trade deficit: capital account surplus. So, which sounds worse? We have a five billion dollar trade deficit with China, or we have a five billion dollar capital account surplus? <laughs> right? Clearly, trade deficit. That sounds bad. Oh my gosh, a trade deficit. It sounds like a terrible thing. But if I told you we had a $5 billion capital account surplus with China, you'd think that would be a wonderful thing. It sounds great. That's what the trade deficit is. Um, And that's why people use the word trade deficit. Um, That's why it was first used, I should say. Now it's used just without people knowing, but that's why it was first used. It's a deceitful word to get you to feel something not used to get you to think, right? Current current accounts or capital account surplus doesn't sound scary because it's not. But that's what it really is. I'm, I'll make this promise here because this is a tricky thing, right? It's a tricky topic. But I want to spend some more time on it um, in the weeks to come because... I loved how they talked about it in the debate the other day a lot. I think it was one, I think it was the first topic that was brought up and then, and then Cruz brought it up a little later in the debate as well. And it was good. And I'm glad we're having this conversation. It needs to be had, but it's a tricky one to have. I'll give you one last example of of where tariffs hurt Americans. So Trump's a big tariff guy. Cruz is a free trade guy. Rubio talks a free trade game, but he supports one of the most absurd tariffs in the entire country. It's tariffs on sugar. Sugar is grown in Florida. And these tariffs are there to support the very few sugar farmers in Florida at the expense of billions of dollars in America. Literally, it costs around $4 billion every year, these sugar tariffs. To the American consumer, $4 billion. So the world price for sugar is about 26 cents a pound. And the American price is 43 cents a pound. And we're not allowed to buy sugar from anywhere else around the world because there's a tariff on it. And the tariff makes it, you know, 44 cents a pound. So you're going to buy the American tariff, American sugar at 43 cents a pound, all to protect the very few sugar farmers in Florida. The difference between the world price and the American price and the amount of sugar we buy, that ends up being $4 billion a year. But it's not just that, right? If we had to spend $4 billion more 
to protect some sugar farmers in Florida, you could maybe make an argument that's a good thing. I wouldn't, but maybe one could. But it's not just that. There's far-reaching ramifications. Um, candy manufacturers, just to pick one, they don't exist anymore in America. They've all moved to Canada and Mexico for no other reason other than the price of sugar is half the price there as it is here. There used to be a Lifesavers factory outside of Detroit, or excuse me, Chicago. It's been there for 35 years, and it moved to Canada just a couple years ago and took 600 jobs with them. Why? Because 99% of a Lifesaver is sugar. And if they move across the border, which isn't far, right, from Chicago to Canada, not far, they move across the border, then their number one ingredient is, is half the price. That's the only reason they left. And it's not just them. Hershey has closed plants in Pennsylvania, Colorado, California, all to move to Canada. Fannie Mae closed in 2004. Brock's Candy moved to Mexico in 2004. All because of the sugar tariff. So for every sugar job that's saved by tariffs in Florida, there are three candy manufacturing jobs lost. So it's really easy, again, to look at a tariff and say, oh, look, here's a sugar farmer that's saved because of the tariff. But no one sees the three candy manufacturing jobs that are lost because of that tariff. It's a net loss. And again, a great example of push and pull. None of these candy manufacturers wanted to move to Canada. There wasn't a strong pull from Canada to move. But there was a strong push from America to kick them out. Tariffs are a form of crony capitalism. And conservatives are supposed to be against that, right? Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, thanks for being here. Uh, let's see, what can we talk about now? Let's do a little Marco Rubio. Right, so we talked about Trump. I got some more Trump stuff coming up. Um, we talked about tariffs a little bit, a little policy discussion. Now, we did a half an hour of, of policy that uh, a lot of people disagree with, right? In the conser- amongst conservatives, it's a contentious debate. So let's talk about something that we all agree on. <laughs> Um, Marco Rubio clip. This this may be one of my favorite moments. This I think this was my favorite moment of the debate the other day because I was watching and I this this was my reaction. Have you ever had this reaction before? Marco Rubio said this and I go, "Thank you, thank you." Have you ever <laughs> have you ever had that before? There's different reactions when someone says something you agree with or you like. You can be like, "Yes, good for you. Go go go." Whatever. This was like, "Thank you." Jeez, finally, finally, someone's. Um, and because we don't know how much longer Marco Rubio is going to be in this campaign, I figure we might as well give him a spotlight for a minute here. Here's Marco Rubio talking about climate change. 421. Senator Rubio, the Miami mayor has endorsed you. Will you honor his request for a pledge and acknowledge the reality of the scientific consensus of climate well, change and pledge to do something sure, about it. Sure, the climate is changing. And one of the reasons why the climate is changing is because the climate has always been changing. There has never been a time when the climate has not changed. Thank I think the you. fundamental question for a policymaker <laughs> is, 
Is the climate changing because of something we are doing? And if so, is there a law you can pass to fix it? So on the issue of flooding in Miami, it's caused by two things. Number one, South Florida is largely built on land that was once a swamp. And number two, because if there is higher sea levels or whatever it may be happening, we do need to deal with that through mitigation. And I have long supported mitigation efforts. But as far as a law that we can pass in Washington to change the weather, there's no such thing. On the contrary, there is, a, there is laws they want us to pass. There are laws they want us to pass that would be devastating for our economy. Or, or these programs like what the president's put in with the Clean Power Act or all these sorts of things that he's forcing down our throat on the war on coal. Let me tell you who's going to pay the price of that. Americans are going to pay the price of that. The cost of doing that is going to be rammed down the throat of the American consumer, the single parent, the working family who are going to see increases in the cost of living, the businesses who are going to leave America because it's more expensive to do business here than anywhere else. And you know what passing those laws would have, what impact they would have on the environment? Zero. Because China is still going to be polluting and India is still going to be polluting at historic levels. So I am in favor of a clean environment. My children live in South Florida. My family's being raised here. I want this to be a safe and clean place, but these laws some people mm -hmm. are asking us to pass will do nothing for the environment and they will hurt and devastate our economy. So just to clarify, Senator Isn't that Rigolato, great? Mayor Rigolato, when he talks about the reality of the scientific about climate change, the Republican mayor of Miami, he, he's saying the scientific consensus is that man does contribute to climate change. When you talk to him, because he is the mayor of Miami and he has endorsed yeah. you, you tell him that he's wrong? I would say to him that there is no law that they want us to pass that would have any impact on that. If we passed, if you took the, the gift list of all of these groups that are asking us to pass these laws and did every single one of them, there would be no change in our environment. Sea level would still rise. All these other things that are happening would continue to go on for a lot of different reasons. One, because America is not a planet. It's a country. And number two, because these other countries like India and China are more than making up in carbon emission for whatever we could possibly cut. Here's what he will immediately, and, I, and Mayor Regalado is a great mayor and a good friend, but here's what he's immediately going to start hearing from. He will immediately start hearing from families in South Florida who are barely making it by, and now their electric bill went up $20 or $30 a month because we've just made it more expensive to generate power. Thank you, Senator. That cost will be passed on to working families. I am not going to destroy the U.S. economy for a law that will do nothing for our environment. Governor Kasich, what would you say to the mayor? There you go, right? Can't be that, right? Beautiful. We say that all the time. Well, you can I, stop I, that. Of course, the climate is changing. I think that was maybe a mistake that conservatives, I'll say me, uh, I made in the beginning when they were talking about climate change. And I'd say, no, it's not changing. And that was a reaction to the, you know, the, but no, of course it's changing. It's always been changing. It's never not been changing. I distinctly remember in middle school, learning about the Bering Land Bridge. Do you remember, does this ring a bell? Like, a, I think it was, middle, maybe it was freshman year. I don't know, the Bering Land Bridge. It's a, uh, a piece of land that connects Russia to Alaska. And today it's underwater, but at one point, sea levels were very low, and this land bridge was 600 miles wide. So I should put it like this. At one point, water was over it, and it didn't exist. And then at another point, the water was really low, so the, the land was, you know, open. And then it was covered again, like it is now. So scientists say that it existed 16,000 years ago, this Bering Land Bridge during an ice age, right? So there's an ice age, so the icebergs took up a bunch of water, and, and it exposed this land. 
And then 11,000 years ago, it started to be covered by water again. But in the meantime, it's believed that people and animals crossed from continent to continent, right? From Russia to North America during that time to populate America. Animals and people, right? Now, I haven't done much research on this. I, 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 don't, I just remember learning it, right? That's all I'm saying. And I'm not sure the evidence that scientists have for it or whatever, but I distinctly remember learning about it. Now, if that's true, right? If the Bering Land Bridge existed 16,000 years ago, what caused that ice age? What caused the ice? What caused 5,000 years after that, the ice to melt? What caused the climate to change over those 5,000 years? Cars? Did people 10,000 years ago have cars? Were they burning fossil? Like what, what was doing it? I mean, no, clearly the climate was changing back then. That's why this is such an absurd conversation. Because it's based on the premise that the climate has always been the same. That it's been one average temperature forever until we started driving cars and now it's too hot or cold, whatever. I don't know what it is. I don't know what they're saying it is now. The climate has always changed. It will always change. And I'm not even so sure that scientists know what the right temperature of the planet should be. Right? I keep hearing that it's too hot. Well, what's the right temperature? I don't know. I mean, they say it's it's too hot based on, I guess, the average, but it's the average of what, the last hundred years? Who says that's the right temperature? Who says that's the optimal temperature? Who says that's the real average over thousands of years? They have no idea. I'm so sick of this climate change conversation. And then I'm sick of being called a denier because of it. I'm not denying. I'm not denying it's changing. It's always changed. I just want to know from the left what made the climate change 16,000 years ago to create the Bering Land Bridge. And once you can tell me that, then we'll talk about me driving my car to work and you rising, raising the price of my gas or my electric bill or forcing me in California to ride high-speed rail because you think the sea levels may rise a little bit more if I don't. Like, stop with that already. Read a comment on Huffington Post among thousands on uh, that Rubio clip. And someone said, anyone who thinks that man isn't impacting our environment is incredibly harmful and even deadly. Uh, oh, sorry. Any, let me try again. Take two. Anyone who thinks that man isn't impacting our environment in incredibly harmful and even deadly ways is either incredibly ignorant and naive, stupid, or lying or some combination thereof. So I'm either incredibly ignorant, naive, stupid, or lying. I'm definitely not lying. Uh, I don't think I'm stupid. <laughs> I'm asking questions. So by definition, I'm not ignorant. I'm, like, I'm asking these questions to learn more, and I guarantee you they don't have answers for them. I don't know how naivete would lie into this. Now, one last thing. Pollution is something to be concerned about. Don't get me wrong. But pollution and climate change are not the same thing. That's one thing that the left has been able to, to trick people on last couple of years. The pollution and climate change are the same. They're not. We could talk about pollution. No one wants pollution. But the idea is, as just as Marco Rubio said, that we can pass all these laws and change the temperature of the planet. That is naive. 
So I guess the takeaway is when someone says, you know, do you believe in climate change? Like, yeah, the, cli- the climate's changing, but it's always been changing. And there's nothing that humans can do to stop it. one 888 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders. Want to go to Mike, who is in beautiful Buffalo, New York. Mike, how are you today, sir? Yeah, hey, how you doing? Good, appreciate you being here. I used to live in Syracuse. That's why i uh, very familiar with uh, with Buffalo. Love it there. What's on your mind, Mike? Yeah, I'm just talking. Well, you were talking earlier about the tariffs and all that, and you're blaming that tariffs is... America's being the workers are, are losing money and jobs because these companies are being forced out by tariffs, which is absolutely just it's just totally ludicrous to even say that. And what's even worse is people listening really believe that. And and the bottom line is it's corporate greed that is bringing these companies to Mexico. And when you can pay China a dollar thirty five an hour and there's no OSHA there's no safety net. There's no retirement. There's nothing. These companies move down there, and it's a trickle effect. Look at Carrier in Indianapolis. They moved because all their suppliers moved to Mexico. So it's cheaper, and they can make more money. And I'll give you a stat right now. The average increase, the increase from 1978 to today for CEOs is 937% increase in pay. 937% for a CEO. The workers' wages, private sector worker, 10% increase. Doesn't that sound a little startling, Neil? All right, we've got a couple things going on here. Um, we'll, go in, we'll go in the order. So what did you think my argument was before? I may not have been clear. because I, what, How did you assess my argument that you called ludicrous? Well, well what you said is the, these uh, companies are being forced to go to Mexico and China. So let, let me, can you give me one minute to, yeah, can you, can you give me, yeah, let me put Mike on hold real quick. Mike, give me one minute here to, uh, to clarify my comments here. I appreciate this. Um, so my argument was there's a push and a pull. So China has a pull, which says, so let's say there's an American company in Buffalo. Okay. And, uh, China says, Hey, move to China. And they make all the arguments as to why this company in Buffalo should move to China. And there's a couple arguments here and there that are okay. But no one in Buffalo wants to move to, to China, right? No one's like, oh, I, no one in Buffalo's like, I can't wait to move to China. It's going to be so great there. No one wants it. My argument is there's also a push. And the push is state income taxes, corporate income taxes, government regulations, being in, uh, you know, with all the, the progressives and liberals who have been running uh, New York State into the ground for all these years. I know I, live in, I lived in Syracuse. Uh, the push is environmental regulations. The push are all these other business regulations. The push are all these labor laws. Um, the push are all the unions who make it difficult to do business here. The push, all these things that make it hard to do business in America, push companies overseas. Because they say, 
I just can't survive here anymore. It's so difficult. So my argument is before we start putting tariffs down, let's start, let's lower the corporate income tax. Let's get rid of these environmental regulations. You know, let's, let's uh, get some of these labor, get rid of some of these labor laws. Let's do some tort reform, right? Let's do these things to stop pushing American companies overseas. Does that make sense? Well, the word push is wrong. Stop saying that, please. Why, I, don't know why, I don't know why you don't like the word push. Because it's not true. They're going, the CEOs, the people who fly in the jet planes, they're not the ones who are going to be living in China. They're the ones who are calling the shots. They're forcing the workers to go there. You either go there or you're out of a job. So let's not make it out like these CEOs are forced to go to China. They're sitting in their offices wherever they are, and, and they're flying their, you know, their jet planes over to China, what, couple weeks here, a couple weeks there. I don't want, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a lot of time. I don't want to. No, wait. no, no. You're okay. You're okay. But here's the, here's the okay. other thing I sense. I'm sensing a lot of, um, first of all, have you, have you lost your job? No, no, actually I am a union worker. I'm a, a union representative. Okay. So it sounds, I'm, I'm sensing, industry. I'm sensing a lot of envy. I'm sensing envy between you and the CEOs. Is that true? Envy? Yeah. As in, like, I'm jealousy? Is that what you mean? Bitterness? Like, bitterness, like they're no, making so no. much money, something no, like that. I, I, no, so, here's, what, here's what hurts me, and I'm going to be I swear, honest with you. Uh-huh. Every time I see middle-class Joe lose a job, nobody cares in America. He's brushed under the rug. He's gone. He's forgotten about right? That bothers me. It bothers me because when I grew up, we had a house, we had a car, we had a... And the American dream is no longer there because the CEOs, as I said, a 937%... Okay, that's what I wanted to address. That's what I, see, that's where the envy... That's where I'm hearing the envy. Listen, I care as much as... I, I, I care just as much as you about that, the, the regular working man, right? But I'm telling you, the fact that the CEO makes more money doesn't make a difference. We shared this fact before that if you took listen listen to this I got to run in 30 seconds. If you took every penny from the top 500 CEOs in America in the S&P 500, if you took every penny of their net worth and you distributed it amongst the workers, the workers would make 3 cents an hour more. A dollar 36 an hour in China, man. You cannot compete with that. Don't yes, you can. Yes, it. you can. I got to run, man. I got to run, Mike. I apologize. You absolutely can because it's so much better to be here. First of all, it's exp- it's, it is expensive to do business over there because you got to ship stuff. It's a pain in the butt. No one wants to do business in China. It's way better to do it here, and we make it far too difficult. We make China look good, and that's a shame. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America is the greatest country in the world. How are you? Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Uh, I got a nice message the other day on Facebook from Tim. Tim, who is a Ted Cruz supporter. Says, Mike, I'm enjoying uh, listening to your show on, padca- on podcast over the last month or two. And I enjoy listening to your dissection of the Trump phenomenon. I like that. I like that way of putting it. I like that Tim sees it as, as just that, just a, an, an analysis of it, of it. <laughs> period. Um, 
a dissection, neither for nor against. That's not my job. You can decide what to do with this information. So Tim, here's what I'm talking about as I dissect the Trump phenomenon. And he's come to the conclusion to be a Ted Cruz supporter. Totally fine. You can hear this dissection of the Trump phenomenon and and choose to be a Trump supporter because of it or whatever. Not my job to tell you what's going on or what to do. I just remember when when Trump first started um, in the race, no one in the media knew what was going on. and, And we set out to try and figure it out. And I'm going to tell you something that once once you see this and once I explain it, you you can't unsee it. So I wasn't going to do this segment. Um, I, I, I did. I made this argument on my uh, local show the other day. And then someone who listens to local show and this show said, hey, Slater, can you make that argument again? So I'm like, yeah, sure. Once you see that, he said it's an epiphany. He said he had an epiphany after it. Um, once I explain this, you can't unknow it. It's sort of like, so I took a photography class a week or so ago with my wife, just for fun. And it's all about lighting, right? I didn't know anything about photography, but it's all about lighting. And once you, it was like a two-hour class, that's it. But once the professor or whoever told us like what to look for, I can't unsee it, right? Like the world looks different, right? I'm walking around and I see shadows more. I see light more. I I I'm by no means, you know, you know, expert photographer, but things stand out like didn't like like they never have before. So just this two-hour class changed my perception of light. It was really fascinating. So what I'm going to do here is change your perception of how you look at this race. So we've said before, or different parts of the race, we've said before that it's all about strength and weakness. Okay, that that's what that's the dichotomy that Trump has established. He's strong. Everyone else is weak. So Trump's the businessman, the master negotiator. has been doing it for four decades. It's all about leverage and getting the upper hand and using power moves to get your way. It's second nature to him at this point. He doesn't even try. He doesn't have to think about it. It just happens. It's, it, he doesn't sit down and, and try to plot it out. It just, it's like that. And I liken it to... You know, if you if you asked Jimmy Page to play Stairway to Heaven, he doesn't say, okay, but how's it start again? Like where it goes, da, 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 da. do I, what, what's the first chord? I forget the first chord. Like, no, like, he's played it 10 million times. Eric Clapton doesn't go, hey, what's the next, what's, what's the next, uh, how's the chorus go of Layla? How does it go? I forget. I forget all the, no, like he knows it, right? He sings it in his sleep. Like it's second nature to these guys. It's ingrained in them. It's the same with Trump, right? These power moves are just second nature to him at this point. He doesn't even think about it. So a friend of mine who is a, um, a performer, he's an actor, a thespian is aware of different things that I'm not aware of. And he was looking at some old Howard Stern interviews. And he came across an interview that Howard Stern did with Jerry Seinfeld. Now, Howard Stern is the best ever at his craft. Now, you may not like the style, you may not like the content, but his interviewing ability is unparalleled. And the art of radio that he does is, uh, it's, it's never, it's, I mean, it's the best ever. Again, you may not like it, and you know, I don't, it's not my style, obviously. But 
he's really, really good at it. Probably the best interviewer ever. I'm not kidding. The way he gets people to open up and share things that they would never share, it's unbelievable. And I thought for the longest time, how does he do it? Now, he does it in a couple different ways, but there's one way in particular that relates to Donald Trump. Power. He has one particular power move that he uses on guests to get them to open up. So here's the scene, and I want to play this clip here. The Howard Stern Show is already in progress, which is sort of a little bit of a power move in and of itself. But Jerry Seinfeld is the guest. Jerry Seinfeld's in the green room when the show starts. So the show starts, talks for a little while, Howard Stern does, and then they bring Jerry Seinfeld on, right? The show's already in progress. Jerry Seinfeld comes on. Here's the scene. Big studio. Big giant studio. Howard Stern is behind this huge desk. Like massive, unnecessarily huge desk. TV screens all around him. And he's in this huge chair. It's almost like a throne. And the entire thing is elevated a foot and a half off the ground. He's like a pharmacist. Towering above you. That's where he sits. The guest, they sit on a tiny couch on the other side of the room. A tiny dorm room couch, big pillows to make you seem really small. You sit in it and you just sink into it, right? You, you, sit, you disappear in it. And, and it's so low that your knees are like above your waist. You know what I mean? Your feet are on the ground, your knees are above your waist. And you, you sit in this couch and you become very small. And if you're a celebrity and you're used to being uh, you know, treated in a certain way, this is a very undistinguished posture. It's, it's, it makes you uncomfortable and it's disarming and it's almost insulting in a way. But what else are you going to do? So imagine any interview. Howard Stern is up on his throne and the guest is in this tiny little couch sucked into it as uncomfortable as can be. That's a power move. Now, I want to play this clip here. It's short, about a minute. Listen to this exchange. There's a power struggle between uh, Howard Stern and Jerry Seinfeld. Why? Because Jerry Seinfeld knows exactly what Howard is trying to do. Here it is. Jerry Seinfeld does a show on the internet. I don't know if you've watched it. It's really, really good. I have not. um, It's a a series called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. I heard about this. It's really good. Oh, my God. Look at you. Look at this. Tanned and healthy. Unreal. Thank God you're here. I heard you and Larry were hitting it off in the... uh, how you doing, Howie? <laughs> How you you doing, look Jeff? good. I do? You, no, not that good, but yeah, pretty exactly. good. I've hit the wall. You're looking at him like you haven't seen him in an age or I, so. Well, I, I, I last saw you Radio City, I think. The TM. The TM benefit. event. Yes, yes, right. yes. And uh, Jerry, Jerry's been meditating. Could I get a chair and, and sit here with Howard? <laughs> Why do you hate the couch? Why do you hate the couch? I'm going to show you. Matt Lauer because has the same I, problem. Because I know about performing and I know about energy. Sit I know. on the couch, relax. We'll get, that'll you in take a, your we'll, energy we'll get you in a okay. haze. Yeah, you see, you're getting something, getting some energy from me now, right? Listen, you better sit down because <laughs> I have been preparing for your interview. <laughs> now so it's like, I'm, I'm out of it here. I'm out of it. I have so many questions. <laughs> He's going to sleep. <laughs> the couch puts you to sleep. That's my technique. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Jerry Seville called him out on it. 
I love that line from Seinfeld. He says, I don't want to sit on the couch because I know about performing and energy. I want to play one last clip. This is Jerry Seinfeld on Letterman. Uh, just before Letterman is one of Letterman's final shows. So Letterman's the host, Jerry Seinfeld, the guest again. Here it is. That was a great honor that you just bestowed on me. It was fun. It now was let me fun. tell you, there's one thing that you have never done on this show is be a guest. You have that's never right. done that. That's right. Would you like to know what that's like? No. <laughs> no. No, I know. I've been a guest on uh, shows. Other people have been nice enough to invite me as a guest. And but not on this show. No, not You've on this show. never been a guest on I, this show. I stink as a guest. I'm, I'm not that great as a host, but as, as a guest. Do you want me to give you a little feeling of what it's like? Okay. It's like this. Can we pause here real quick? Can we pause? Okay. Seinfeld, he's in the guest chair. He just sat up on the back of the chair. Right? So his... His feet are on the cushion, like the main cushion, and he, he's, he's sitting on the back top of the chair. So now he is taller than Letterman. Here's the rest. See this angle? That's what it's like. Here, How does that feel? You sit there and let me see if it's... Is it that bad? Yeah, it's bad. Now they're switching seats. You can't fix it now. You're done, but it's bad. Yeah, people uh, complain that uh, I am uh, loftier. Yeah, how, how's that feel? Intimidating. Yeah, it's intimidating. It's intimidating. How, how am I possibly going to be entertaining <laughs> with this giant looming to yeah. my left? Yeah, with a bad attitude also. <laughs> stop it. Okay, so what's the Trump parallel here? Donald Trump is a performer. He understands performance and energy and optics and power struggles. He has to be the one in control, and he will take control any way possible. So I, I talked about this on my local show the other day, and Donna was listening, and she wrote this on Facebook. She said, Slater, interesting that you're talking about Trump's technique of being the tallest one in the room to capture the energy, and not really the tallest, but just capturing the energy, right? I saw Trump on Fox after the last debate with O'Reilly using that very technique. O'Reilly's a few inches taller than Trump. And they were standing uh, next to each other, and Trump was po- trying to position himself to be taller. And it was funny because O'Reilly called him out and said, no, 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 I know what you're trying to do, and we're not going to do that. Here's what happened. You remember the Fox debate, right? Right when it ended, Trump walked to the front of the stage where the um, moderators sit, right? Walked to the front of the stage, and O'Reilly walked to the front. Now, O'Reilly's like six five or something he's huge and trump's six three but i think it looked like even a bigger difference between them so trump saw o'reilly walking to him this is all on video trump saw o'reilly walking towards him so what did trump do he took a step back on top of the stage so he he was off the stage like on the main floor and then saw o'reilly coming and he took a step back so now he's on top of the stage and o'reilly's on the floor and trump Unfortunately, the stage was like a, like a foot higher, so it was awkward. So O'Reilly, O'Reilly called him out on it and said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And then they both stood up on the stage. But do you see the power play there? Like, why would Trump even think to do that? Why would he think to do that? Because he knows. He knows performance. He knows energy. He knows optics. He knows power struggles. No one has, no performer has ever run for president. Lawyers, politicians, 
Doctors even. Never performers. Not like Trump. Next time you see a talk show, late night talk show, look at how the host's chair is higher. Not enough to notice if you weren't looking for it. But once you see it, no, you can't not see it. And it makes a huge difference. Everything Trump does is to win the energy in the room. Everything Trump does is to put the attention on him. That's how he wins. And he plays the media game better than anyone. And if you're rolling your eyes a little bit and you don't think this is important and you don't think it's insignificant, why would Howard Stern have his guests sit on a couch three feet below him? And why does Jerry Seinfeld not want to? one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater, let's go to Jason in the great state of Alaska. That was uh, cruise territory, right? Jason, who won Alaska? Uh, it was cruise, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Beautiful. What's on your mind, man? How are you? Hey, uh, okay, the, the, the other day I was watching the, the movie Gladiator, right? Oh, I'm, and then naturally. The, yeah, yeah, and, and the, the scene where the two politicians are sitting outside the market, and one of them says, you know, it's terrible. Oh, Caesar's going to throw games for 30 days to honor his father, you know, Marcus Aurelius. And this is terrible. And the other one says, no, no, this, it's ingenious that he'll bring them blood and sand and they'll love him for it. Do you understand? <laughs> and then wow. I saw uh, Trump talk this morning and I went, that's it right there. He's bringing them, he's bringing them the games. He's bringing them blood and sand and they're just, they're just, they're just feasting on it. You know what I'm saying? And that's, I, I, I had to laugh. And, and then when I heard you talk this morning, I had to share that with you, brother. I love uh, it, man. I'm going to steal side, it. I'm going to steal it. Can I, can I share that on TV? Like, I'm going to – that's an yeah. awesome analogy. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's the truth. He says, no, no. It's, it's ingenious. <laughs> because he'll, 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 he'll distract them. He'll distract them and bring them, you know, this, this furious, you know, hunger for, you know, all this vicious stuff. And meanwhile, he's just sliding right by, right by gaining power, right? Yeah, here that we are. Here we are. Deal. What? We are like 10 months past he, he announced and he's owned the media every single day for 10 months. And, and on every, Tuesday, and every, that's it. And, and, you know, the other part, you know, that they, they, they did clean up the dead bodies out of the Coliseum. But it was a known fact that the mob itself, that they had to clear dead people that, like, beat each other up out of the stands and everything like that. You know, mm-hmm. all the mob that, you know, like, pummeled each other during the games and everything like that. <laughs> it was, yeah, it's it crazy. And that's what's awesome. happening, right? Yeah. Cool. I, I, you said I you had a second point. That you, uh, that you enlighten and educate me at all times, brother. And I listen to you every Saturday in my wood shop while I make, while I make instruments and stuff. It's pretty cool. Man, I love that image. That is awesome. T- describe your wood shop. Help, help me out. What are you making? Okay, I make Native American flutes for a living. Woodwind mm-hmm. instruments out of uh, a western red cedar from out of the triangle, which is the Tongass, the Washington area, and the Panhound. It's pure western red cedar. And then Sitka yellow cedar fipple blocks. Uh, I just took first place at the Artistry and Wood for first place and people's choice. Nice. Yeah. Good for you, man. Congratulations. So you make flutes. How big is this flute? 
Okay, well, they range from about 19 inches, which is the high C. You know, Whoa. the high C. And, and then you get the mid-range, which is seven-eighths of a boar on the inside. And most things in nature are seven-eighths of a boar, reeds and Cherokee river cane and stuff like that. And then you have the one-inch, you know, the lower tones, like the key of E. I play my classical guitars with the key of E uh, because it's got that low tone. And now you can imagine some of the best cedars in the world come from out of there. We're talking guitar tops, violins, cellos. <laughs> yeah. So you can Good imagine stuff. the sound resonance from one of these floats. And if you ever you, want one, brother, you just you just ask. I'll send you. Well, I was, I was going to ask you, man, if you have a website so I can peruse your flute selection. Yeah, it's PeacefulSoundsInAK.com. Yeah. Peaceful Sounds in what AK. Is it? In a, oh, in Alaska. Yeah, in AK.com. I'm going to check yeah, it out. Can, All right. All right, brother. Hey, I have a good it. day. Keep enlightening Jason. us. Keep enlightening us, man. Keep in touch, brother. I appreciate you very much. There you go. Jason in Alaska in his woodworking shop making Native American flutes. Uh, in, in, I'm assuming uh, uh, down the street from his house where he rides his snow machine to and fro. I learned the other day that in Alaska they're called snow machines, not snowmobiles. Alaska knowledge there. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate that, man. Um, can we do this real quick? Can we play this clip of uh, Donald Trump, 1989, on the Larry King Show? Do you mind if I sit back a little bit because no. your breath is very bad? It really is. Has this ever been told to you before? No. Huh? Okay, then I won't bother. <laughs> no, actually, like, that's I how have... that's how you get the edge. <laughs> So people heard that and they thought they'd see that clip and they think, oh, my gosh, what a jerk Donald Trump is. Now, there's context to it. Right before that, Larry King asked Donald Trump how he gets the edge, how he gets the upper hand in business negotiations. And that's it. And then he just went right into character. And oh, you're man, your breath. Has anyone ever told you how terrible your breath? That was that was that was an act. But he does that. So, again, that's to get the upper hand. That's the power play there. He does it all the time. Been doing it for 40 years. He knows how to do it now in the media, running for president. And we, I found there. Someone sent me that clip, and I said, "Oh my gosh, he did that to me." When I did our, when we did our 90-minute interview with Donald Trump, right before we went live, I said, "Hey, Donald, you know the first question I'm going to ask you is uh, something about, you know, it was about his first hotel he ever built in New York City, and blah blah." blah. And he goes, 30 seconds before we're live, he goes, "That's a terrible question." He goes, that's an awful question. Who is this guy? Why would he ask that question? Don't ask that question. That's a horrible question. And then we were on. Uh, now I decided to go for it, and I asked the same question, and he goes, what a great question. And he smirked at me. <laughs> but he was trying to get the upper hand, trying to throw me off, trying to be unpredictable with his power play. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. As a candidate, oh, there's no doubt. Well, listen, I gave a series of policy speeches throughout the year. I was lucky if it got a mention. He would use a bad word at a rally or ask people to pledge allegiance. You name it. Whatever he does, it dominates news coverage. You had the head of CBS about a week ago say Donald Trump may not be good for America, but he's really good for CBS and our ratings. So, yeah, reality TV has infected our politics. 
The, the culture has crossed over into our political debate, and the problem is that what's at stake here is the most important political office in the world, the commander-in-chief of the United States, the person that has the power to send a young men and women off to die in combat. That's what's at stake here, and it's become a reality TV show, and I think our country's going to regret this for a long time. What did you make of the, uh, the press conference that Trump had last night out of, from Florida? It was an hour long. All, all of the cable networks covered it nonstop, you know, beginning to end. Listen, he is a master of manipulating the media to cover him. They, they cut in because they have no idea what he's going to say. Here's the sad indictment. And I, I know you're in the media. I don't mean you. I just mean in general. Those couple days where I was saying, no, she's good. She's very good. <laughs> but uh, she's tough. She's tough. But, uh, but those couple days that I was saying those things that I, that, that I would do differently, every media outlet in America was cutting in live to my events. Every one of them, because they were hoping I would say something so they could cover it. That's how sad this has gotten. And, and it's, you know, it's unfair. The voters deserve better. They really do. This is Mike Slater. So that's not a new phenomenon, what Rubio was just talking about there. I want to tell a story here of P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum, you know him. Barnum and Bailey Circus, greatest showman ever. Uh, certainly greatest showman of the 19th century. Because, again, being a showman is nothing new, uh, even in that century. But before he was P.T. Barnum, he was the assistant to the owner of, of some circus. This owner's name was Aaron Turner. So it's 1836. Uh, P.T. Barnum, uh, his name is Phineas. Phineas Turner? I forget. Uh, Phineas something. So he's just Phineas, right? He's just a guy, just a kid, really. Um, 26 years old. He's not a showman yet. He's just working. So the circus that he's working for stopped in Annapolis, Maryland. The morning before the show, he decided to go on a little walk through the town. So he starts walking and people start following him. And he looks behind him and there's a couple of people following him. And then he keeps walking and he looks behind him and there's more people following him. And now they're whispering at each other and they're pointing at him and the crowd gets bigger and bigger. And then he walks into a store to see like what the group of people is going to do. And they all wait outside. So he's thinking, what, what's going on here? Why are these people following me? So he walks out the store and he says, what are you doing? And finally, someone in the crowd says, it's him. It's Ephraim Avery. Ephraim Avery would be like O.J. Simpson at the time. Ephraim Avery was charged with murder, but got off, and everyone thought he was guilty. Right? You with me? So here's so everyone in, in town thinks that P.T. Barnum, who's just Phineas, right, just a guy, thought he was this murderer. So this mob starts attacking him. And they're ready to lynch him, right? They're trying to lynch him. So Barnum's like freaking out. And he's desperate. He finally gets away and he convinces uh, everyone in the group. He's like, listen, listen, I work for the circus that just came to town. I, I'll prove it to you. Follow me and I'll prove to you that I'm not Ephraim Avery. So they agree to this. And he takes this mob down to the circus down the street. And he's desperate for his life at this point. And he gets there and his boss is waiting laughing and laughing and laughing. And Phineas is like, tell, tell everyone here that I'm not Ephraim Avery. 
Boss gets up and says, so everyone, there's been a terrible mistake. This gentleman here, he is my assistant. His name is Phineas Bar- uh, Bailey or Barnum. Phil- Phineas Barnum. I assure you he is not the man you think he is. Please go on with your day. And the crowd leaves. And again, the boss just keeps laughing and laughing. And Barnum's like, what? You, what? what did you just do? You. His boss started a rumor in town that Phineas was Ephraim Avery, that he was a murderer. And Phineas like, why would you do that? You almost got me killed. Imagine this scene. Aaron Turner, the boss, puts his arm around a young Phineas Barnum and says, my dear Mr. Barnum, it was all for our good. Remember, all we need to ensure success is notoriety. And sure enough, the whole town was laughing at the joke and the circus was packed for a week. That's how P.T. Barnum learned that lesson that he would never forget. All you need to ensure success is notoriety. I guess the modern equivalent of this would be there's no such thing as bad press. Do not think for a second that Trump isn't doing the same thing every single day. That's what Rubio was talking about. He says every day Trump gets the attention. It doesn't matter what I do. Trump gets the attention every day. How? I don't think how matters as much. He does. I think the why is a better question. Why? Why does the media pay more attention to him than anyone else? To Trump than anyone else? One last P.T. Barnum story that I think answers that question. Before P.T. Barnum started his own circus, he had a business called um, the American Museum. And it was basically, it was kind of like, have you ever been to a Ripley's Believe It or Not museum? It's just like a, a collection of weird things. It'll be like a stuffed four-headed pig. And, and then like, here's a statue of the you know, tallest man in the world or whatever. Like just weird, crazy things. And this was in New York City. And every day he'd have like 10 people show up and buy a ticket. So one day he's walking to work and a beggar comes up to him, asks for some money. Instead of giving him money, He says, you know what? Come with me. He took the homeless man to his museum and he said, here, take these five bricks. I want you to walk down the street and every block, I want you to lay one brick on the sidewalk. And then I want you to walk another block, put another brick down, another block, put another brick down. I do that five five blocks. And then when you're done, turn around and I want you to Pick up each brick one at a time and come back to the museum. You're thinking, what? And he said, okay, here's what else. I want you to look as serious as a heart attack and don't talk to anyone. No matter how many people come up to you, no matter how many questions they ask you, don't say anything. One last thing. When you get back to the museum... I want you to walk through the front doors, out the back doors, and do the exact same thing down that sidewalk. One brick down at a time. And then when you're done, pick up, I want you to turn around, pick up one brick at a time, come back in through the back door, out the front door, and I want you to go back down the street, and I want you to keep doing that all day long. 
don't talk to anyone. The very first time that this homeless man made that circuit, a couple people stopped. And then he did the circuit again and more people stopped. And by the fourth time he did it, people are swarmed around him. They're wondering, what is this this guy doing? Why is he doing this? What a weird thing to be doing. Why is he laying one brick at a time? And why won't he answer my questions? All these people are following him. And then he goes back to the museum, walks through the front door, and walks out the back door. And P.T. Barnum said, whoa, whoa, if you want to continue through here, you got to buy a ticket. A thousand people bought tickets to the museum that day. Just so they could see what this man was going to do with those bricks. The homeless man came back the next day, started doing the same thing, but the police had to stop him because there were too many people watching him and they blocked traffic. But that's okay because P.T. Barnum got all the publicity he needed. Now you're thinking, Slater, that is the stupidest story I've ever heard in my life. That, that, that is so dumb. That is, what, like, that is the dumbest story. I can't believe you. How did, first of all, how did you turn that into a 10-minute story? That was a huge waste of time. Here I am in my wood shop in Alaska making Native American flutes, and uh, you totally wasted my thought. Like, what, what, why would you even share that story? Why, and why would people care about this guy laying bricks on the sidewalk? Why would they follow him to find out what he was doing? I don't know. Why did you watch the debate the other day? Policy? You're looking for a a substantive policy discussion? Why would you have expected that to happen? Now, it kind of did in the end, but why why would you have expected that? There were 11 debates before that 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 had no policy discussed. And millions and millions and tens of millions of people watched. Most people watch these debates because they knew it was going to be a train wreck. Most people are watching to see, uh, you know, watched the debate to see Uh, If Trump is going to talk about the size of his hands again. Most people are essentially watching a P.T. Barnum circus. We work in packs. We always do. We travel in packs. It's our human nature. We follow the crowds. And the crowd is as fascinated and drawn to Trump today as people were 100 years ago at this homeless guy laying bricks on the sidewalk. And it doesn't matter if it's stupid. It doesn't matter. All that Donald Trump wants is to command attention. And he does it better than anyone since P.T. Barnum. That's all that yesterday was with the uh, Chicago uh, rally. I guarantee you he did not need to cancel that rally. But he knew it would be a better story if he did. It's all about commanding attention. And as Mike was saying a little bit ago, He's been able to do it for, what, 10, 11 months now? And all he's got to do is for one more day. And then he's going to, if, if he wins both on Tuesday, then it's pretty much done. It's all about commanding attention. Now, a little known fact about the greatest showman in the 19th century, P.T. Barnum. He ended his career. So we think of P.T. Barnum as Barnum and Bailey Circus, right? Maybe a snake oil salesman, showman, whatever. He ended his career as a state representative in the Connecticut Assembly and as mayor 
of Bridgeport, Connecticut. It's almost as if there's some sort of connection between being a great showman and a politician. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Got two minutes. I'll share one last quick story here. Uh, in the 40s, old Hollywood, a uh, man was trying, an agent was trying to pitch a movie to Jack Warner. So, you know, Jack Warner of Warner Brothers. Right? So he's trying to pitch a movie, and he was telling this story to another uh, actor. And uh, the actor said, well, did you pitch it to him when you ate lunch with him yesterday? He said, no, no, I didn't, I didn't pitch it then. Why not? And the agent... Um, Swifty Lazar is his name. Have you ever seen the Six Flags commercials? You know, with the bald guy, the big black glasses? Swifty Lazar. Um, He said, I didn't bring it up because Jack is going to Palm Springs next weekend, and I'm going to bring it up to him then. And the guy's like, "Uh, okay, but why are you waiting that long? And the agent goes, listen, I know how to sell Jack. I know what I'm doing. This type of of movie, he's uncomfortable with. So I have to hit him hard and sudden with it. And the guy's like, okay, but why Palm Springs? And Swifty said, because in Palm Springs, every time he goes there, he goes to the baths at the spa. And that's where I'm going to get him. Because there's a thing about Jack. He's 80 years old, and he's very vain. And he doesn't like people to see him naked. So when I walk up to him naked at the spa, he'll be naked and I'll be naked too, but I don't care who sees me naked. I'll walk up to him, and he'll be very embarrassed. And I'll tell him about the movie. And the easiest way for him to get rid of me is for him to say yes. Because he says, if he knows that if, if he says no, then I'm going to stick with him. I'm going to stay right next to him and I'm not going to give up. So to get rid of me, he's going to say yes. So imagine that scene, right? He's like, I, I'm going to get this guy when he's naked because he's vain and I'm going to be naked and we're both going to be naked. And that's why he's going to say yes to get rid of me. Sure enough, two weeks later, he does it. And, and Jack says yes, just to get him away. That is a power move. That is a power move by the agent. And the, the point here is everyone has a thumbscrew. We all put our armor up to defend ourselves. We put this wall around us, but everyone has a gap in their castle wall. And if you can find that person's insecurity, then you can manipulate them. You got to find their thumbscrew. And this guy knew that Jack Warner, the movie exec, his thumbscrew was insecurity. So he found him at a time when he was most insecure and asked him a question. Trump does this on everyone all the time. Why do you think he calls him Little Marco? <laughs> right? A little thumbscrew right there just to get him off his game. And why do you think he picks on the media all the time? Right? Just, you, you, just. <laughs> now I know you're saying, Slater, I hate this stuff. I hate that we elected the leader of the free world with all this stuff. Man, I do too. But the media changed the game a while back. Trump's the first person to figure it out. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.